Well, if you have a Bible, I hope that you do. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll look at verses 8 through 15 tonight. As we start um, looking at and thinking about how the church should function. This is Paul's point here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And um, we will... um, Largely only, we will only tonight focus on verse 8, um, but we will read all, 50, uh, all, um, all these verses, all, all, uh, all of these verses, yes. So, um, so if you're physically able to do so, one more time, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says this, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit the, women, the woman to teach or to have authority over the man, but to be in silence. Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Father, as we look at um, the, the task that's before us, we, um, we know that it is an impossible task to properly um, break the word apart from your spirit working and moving. And may, may you do that for your name's sake now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Uh, I don't think it would be a surprise if I said to you, uh, and and, and I know it has been the case for many years, but if I said to you that we suffer, um, by and large, whether it be in corporations or businesses, whether it be in uh, uh, government or in any number of of, uh, uh, different uh, uh, organizations, from a, a dearth, a lack of good leadership. Leadership has, it, 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 everybody talks about leadership. You ever notice that? Everybody talks about leadership. There are, there are massive mounds upon mounds on leadership. How to be a better leader, how to be a relational leader, how to be a servant leader, how to do this, how to do that. And leadership is on everybody's tongue and yet we suffer from such a lack of good, godly leadership before us. And so tonight, Paul talks to Timothy in our passage. And after telling Timothy, um, laying the the convictional, foundational work of the gospel uh, and the the call for Timothy to rebuke the false teachers and those who have have, uh, left the way of salvation, um, and then to remember his own calling after that, he has gone into talking about how to pray, uh, that, that the church should be a place of prayer. And that uh, after this, though, he's go- he starts here in verse 8 with the, with the word, I desire or I will. Um, I would or I will, I desire, therefore. Well, so what is Paul saying? Well, the word therefore is there because he's going to start applying everything that he's talked about up until this point and specifically to the to the church 
And so what we're going to do tonight is look at part one of the pieces that Paul gives us of how the church should function. And I would say this, it's by no small coincidence, it's by divine providence, I would even add, that God starts with the men. And so with that in mind, let me say this, how the church should function? Well, first and foremost, there should be male leadership. A a local church does not have leadership if they do not have male leadership. There is no such thing as a woman pastor. There is only male elders and pastors. Um, Therefore, there are no women pastors. And if there are women pastors, then there is no true biblical functional um, pastor. And so how should the church function? Well, we should function with male leadership. Having said that, Paul is going, to express, uh, is going to express this throughout the remainder of the book, what that looks like. So let's dive in and let's see what Paul means when he says there must be male leadership. So let's start with the foundation of male leadership. Up until this time, what has Paul been doing? Well, Paul has been laying a biblical theology for Timothy and reminding him of his task, of the job that God has given to him, the task and the, the, the ministry that God has granted to him. And Paul will even go on and talk about what in verses 9 through 11, or 9 through 15, he will talk about the creation order. And this is not by, this is not by chance, this is not by circumstance. Paul is going to ground everything that he says, everything he says in biblical theology. He's going to ground everything he says within the order of, the, within the order of creation and in biblical theology. And he's going to argue from this grounds that that God raises up men to lead the church. And so Paul's exhortation then is for what? Well, his exhortation says that he says that men pray everywhere. Why does he start with the men? Well, he starts with the men, again, because men, we should be leading our homes, ourselves, our homes, our, uh, our, our, uh, um, our churches, our, uh, our businesses, our organizations. We should be leading in that way. We should be honoring the Lord. And so Paul's exhortation for men to pray everywhere indicates that foundational ground-level work of the role of the men in spiritual leadership. Men... But I will say this to you, you cannot lead if you are not prepared. And so we must start with the foundation of men leading. And this goes on because Paul goes on here and he says that I want them to men everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath, without wrath and doubting. So the emphasis here is what Paul says is on holy hands, quote unquote. Holy hands, signifying that their lives are in line with godliness, their values are in line with Christ and the teachings of Christ, that their hearts are aligned with, in holiness and in righteousness and in goodness and in integrity, that they're men who are worthy to be followed. Yes, men are called to, to, to lead, but we are also to be men who are, who are worthy to be followed. And so Paul says that we call upon, he calls upon the men of the church of Ephesus to lead with holy hands, lifted high, serving as the model for leadership, serving like Christ served, honoring the, 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 
the, the call of Christ in the lives of men in the local congregation to serve. We have such a dearth of a, a famine, I guess maybe would be a more common word, a famine of men leading well. So many have disqualified themselves because if we're honest, they can't keep their pants up. And others of them have disqualified themselves because they have been caught in all kinds of other wickedness, unrepentant wickedness. Brothers, we must not be as those who have shipwrecked their faith. Because ultimately, why, what does Paul ground all of this in? The fact that we're men? No. The fact that you're a man? No. The fact that we are utterly, as men, dependent upon God, and this is clear as we are called to be men of prayer. Prayer is, I will make a very, maybe, I don't know for us as a congregation, this will be controversial, but maybe, prayer is one of the primary tools that God has given us brothers to lead, to guide, and to make decisions in the church and in the home. Prayer is one of the primary tools that God has given us for leading, for guiding, and making decisions in the home, in our, in our workplaces, in our, um, in our churches. God has called us to do this. And in order to do this, we must have a spiritually healthy life full of integrity that is only provided through Christ so that our leadership will be effective. It's amazing that as we look at across our country, we're like, where, where are our leaders? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. And honestly, without meaning to take any shots, I'm not so sure some of them know where they are. And brothers, we must not be like this. We must be men who are well aware situationally, emotionally, family, in the family, aware of where we are so that we may serve Christ effectively. Because the spiritual health and the integrity of the local church is dependent upon us. And I say dependent upon us realizing that, that God in Christ ultimately has authority and control over the, over the local church. But he has placed us men to be leaders in the local church. And in saying this, we know as we look at history, as we look at the writings of the apostles and the other apostles, not just Paul, but John or James or, or many others, uh, uh, um, um, uh, um, Jude or, or any of the rest, we see that it, is, it, it has been a primarily understood rule that men lead the local church. Now, when I say that, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that, <laughs> that, that we, uh, uh, you know, we go around, beat our chest, and we're like, ah, we're men, follow us. <laughs> That's not how this works at all, right? I would have made many a bad decision without my wife being there to help me and remind me and pray for me and guide me. And so we're not saying that women have no place 
in helping, in helping and, in, and, in, and, in, and in encouraging and in supporting that task. But it is not our wives who will answer one day if we fail to lead men. Our wives will not have to answer if you and I fail to lead. We will have to answer. The early church understood this impeccably, that men were called to lead the local churches, that men were called to honor the Lord in their, in their leading of their local church and of their families. And we see this continuity passed down from, from, the, from, the, from the New Testament to the to the, uh, to the second, second generation Christians and the third generation Christians. And by the way, this has been the mentality of every single year and decade and century of church history until you get to the modern day. The church has never questioned male leadership. The church has never questioned. And now all of a sudden, we have to have conversations as to whether God's word has changed. Because it just doesn't seem nice to the women. Well, have there been excesses and abuses? You bet there have. And those should be met head on and confronted and rebuked. And if anyone fails to repent, they should be disciplined by a local congregation. But that doesn't remove the responsibility of us as men to lead our families and our churches well. The role of men in upholding and modeling biblical leadership today is as, is as important today as ever. And so men, let, let me encourage you. I, I don't mean to, I, I'm not here to bash you or me. I'm not here to tell us how we're no good dirty dogs. I am here to say to you and I though, that as God's people, we need to embrace the continuation of male leadership within the local church, within the home. Again, we're not acting and we're not called to act as dictators. That's not leadership. Leadership isn't pointing and saying, hey, woman, go get me a drink. That's not leadership, and that's not honoring to God to speak to our wives that way. We don't talk down to our wives. We don't talk down to women in the congregation. We don't act superior to them because we're not superior to them. We are equal before God because both of us were created in the image of God. We both bear and are image bearers made by God in the beginning, male and female. And so this isn't about worth, this isn't about value, this isn't about, this isn't about anything other than our roles that God has given us. God has given us distinct roles. And we have clearly understood this. Paul clearly says this, not only here, but also in Titus. Not only in Titus, but elsewhere we see we see. Men who are called to, to Paul gives us this example in the book of Acts and, and other, other brothers give us this example throughout the, throughout the New Testament that we're called to continue on this model of emphasizing the biblical value of holding to what still many today would call Neanderthal and 
just dumb ideas. They would call us dumb. They would call us backwards. They would call us old-fashioned, maybe, at best, maybe. They would call us old-fashioned. But the reality is, men, we have been called to lead. And again, it doesn't mean that there's no place for uh, the women of the church to, uh, to contribute and to work and to do uh, lots of good things. But it means that we men should be the first on the line. Our, it's funny to me that with all the insistence of, with all the insistence of um, unbiblical feminism, because there's a difference, there's biblical feminism and unbiblical feminism, it's interesting that we now as a country face a very real, a very real option that one day our daughters could be drafted. Brothers, this should be shameful to us. What country sends their daughters to war? A weak and effeminate nation does that. We who are men are called to protect and guard and to offer leadership. And this should be true in the church and in society. This should be true in our, in our lives. We should treat one another with respect and dignity, the dignity that we are created with and the love that we have and the love that we have been given in Christ. But I know that in saying this, there's going to be always those who say, like a good attorney in a, in a law court, I object. Okay, well, let's take those one by one. Objection number one. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul is going to forbid women to speak in church because they were not learned and educated in his day. That's often some of the things we hear. And so therefore, not only that, but Paul is also, that's why Paul also goes ahead and says, well, men are to be the leaders because that's just the way it was in their day, right? Well, the problem with that first is that not all the ladies in the first century were uneducated. There were many very educated women in the first century, both, both uh, Romans and non-Romans. Let me give you a few. Priscilla. Priscilla was of benefit in teaching theology to Apollos, but she did so privately with her husband. The women of wealth and influence in Berea, who studied alongside their husbands to see if what Paul was teaching was accurate. The mother and the grandmother of Timothy, who taught him the scriptures and the way of salvation. And I would say this, if this is just simply talking about being uneducated, then I would say, well, then by understanding, Paul's also saying uh, stupid men are not to lead too or uneducated men are not to lead to, but we don't see any such forbiddance here, do we? And so the reality is, is that Paul, by starting off here and challenging and encouraging and, and, and exhorting the men to be leaders, living holy lives, leading in prayer, leading in the local congregation through prayer, without wrath and doubting, seeking to honor the Lord in all things, we understand then that women are forbidden from the office of the eldership 
in the church because it's in line with the foundation that Paul ends up laying and God ultimately ends up laying in Genesis 2 and all the other teachings that he does from Scripture. He forbids them from teaching the role of a mixed congregation of men and women in the local congregation. It's just the way it is. Doesn't mean women can't teach. Doesn't mean that, that, that they're forbidden from teaching, just not in a mixed company. Objection two, Paul removes the distinction between men and women in Galatians 3, 28. So what you're saying, preacher, is just dumb. Because he writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, let me respond to that by saying this. First and foremost, the theme in Galatians is not about men and women. And after all, if we really are going to go that route with men and women, then that means that we all are in great trouble because if God has done away with maleness and femaleness, what in the world are you and I still doing here? Why are there still men? Why are there still women? The theme in Galatians is how someone is made right with God. So the focus of Galatians is our vertical relationship between God and mankind rather than our horizontal relationships between men and women. And I would say, in fact, neither chapter 3 nor any, other, nor any other chapter in Galatians deals with the roles of men and women and their relationship with one another. So what does that text say? Well, Galatians 3.28 literally reads, this is a literal translation for you. Right? I, I, I made this. This is my own translation. This is how the Greek literally reads here. Not there is Jew nor Greek. Not there is slave nor free. Not there is male and female, for all you ones are in Christ Jesus. And here's something I would add to that. The one in Galatians 3.28 is in the masculine form. So what, what would be supplied there is, would be this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you all are one man in Christ Jesus. So if it's true that at, in Galatians 3, God has in fact done away with the distinctions between male and female, hey ladies, you ain't ladies anymore, you're now men. In Christ, congratulations. So this verse does not teach the removal of gender roles in scripture or the removal of distinct roles of men and women. Instead, it simply highlights the equality of the worth and the value of both men and women in salvation. Something that God is clear about in Genesis 1.27. Any man who hears that men are to lead the church and responds by saying, good, that means that women are not as valuable and as, as worthy as we are, has some serious problems that need to be rebuked. That's not the point. I would also say this, if Galatians 3.28 does remove gender from Scripture, then it would also, it would also allow for homosexuality and transgenderism. And it would also permit the denying of any gender-specific commands from God for men and for women in the marriage. I would point out something very quickly to you. It's interesting that the egalitarians, that it's those who don't see any distinction between men and women, and that anything a man can do, a woman can do in Scripture. 
are the very ones who then come around eventually and say, you know, I don't think homosexuality and lesbianism is such a big deal. And now we find them saying, you know, transgenderism really isn't that big of a deal. Because ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Here's the third objection. Paul's counsel was for the culture of his day and not ours. By starting with the men, he was simply starting where he, where he would have logically started. The thinking goes with the men because they were the leaders of that day. Here's what I want to say to you. Paul always argues for the leadership of the men in the home and in the church and in society by always grounding and arguing from the order of creation first and not culture. Paul never says, hey, guess what? Because we men are men, like Tim the Toolman Taylor, you know, right? You know, like, like we're men, right? We got tools and therefore we're better than everybody else. Um, he never does that. What does he do? He says, look, Adam was created first and given charge and then Eve was created. So he always grounds, he always grounds his prohibition for women being pastors in the order of creation, not in culture. Because look, I, I, I will grant this, while every culture will vary from country to country, and from generation to generation, look, human nature and the foundation of creation doesn't change. So listen, while you, you and I may go to a, uh, may go to a, 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 another, a, a, a church in another country, uh, you, you will be shocked to find out that they don't necessarily do things the way we do things. And that's okay. But ultimately, when it comes to the teaching of leadership and the core and the key things of what makes us theologically who we are, that does not change. So Paul never says, grounded in changing culture. And I would say this, the apostolic teachings come with Christ's absolute and perfect authority, and therefore no one has the right to change those things. Here's objection number four. Well, in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, Paul tells wives and husbands to submit to one another, thus showing the interchangeability of their roles in the denial of male and female, or male headship and male leadership. Paul does this. Paul does this. I want to be fair. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll show you what they're referencing here. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 21, what does he say? He says this. Submitting yourselves to one another in the reverence of God. It's there. Oh my goodness, have we just destroyed all of our theology because of that verse? Well, no, the answer is, is no. No, hasn't. Because let me ask you this, what does Paul then go on to do after verse 21? Why is it that Paul says you should submit yourselves to God first in reverence? Why? Because this is the only way that what he's going to next lay out, the role of husbands and wives, is going to work in any godly marriage. The husband must submit himself first to God and the, in reverence to God, and the wife must also first submit herself 
to God in reverence to God for anything that comes afterwards to work itself out. Because Paul goes through and then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And then husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And he goes through this entire position of roles within the marriage, which ultimately he says is the, is the role for Christ in the church. And so Paul, why would Paul deny male headship in 521 and then go on in 522 through, 20, uh, through 33 and be specific about male headship. It doesn't make sense. I think the reality is that in Ephesians 5.21, Paul is concluding his teaching in chapters 4 and 5 with the general application that all people, men and women, should love and submit to one another. And then as a result, they should submit, them, submit themselves to Christ before, before talking about the role of marriage and submission in marriage which is ultimately illustrated, as I said, with, with the gospel of Christ. Chapter, objection 5 says this, well, what about, what about the, the, the men that are failing to be good leaders in the home or the church? The women need to step up and take on the roles. Now listen, I will never deny that there are not a whole lot of churches out there that if it were not for the women stepping up and leading, they would have closed down a long time ago. But instead of puffing out our chests and saying, oh, look at that, you know what we, you know what the men of that church should be doing? They should be hanging their head in shame. Because you have not followed the calling on your life, man. So this is not what Paul counseled Titus either. Paul didn't say, hey, look, the church in Crete is in shambles. Go find you some women that will keep it open until you can find you some men. What does he say? Go find elders and appoint them and make it their task to get this thing in order, dude. That's what he says. Find men that are qualified to keep these churches open, get them in place, train them, and then they need to set this thing in order. so Paul's argument for male headship is always, again, creational, not situational. And therefore, the creation mandate is to be applied. If male leaders are failing to become good leaders, then rebuke the men in the church that are failing to lead and follow their God-called and God-given task and pray that God would change the situation. Pray that God would change the situation. There's objection six. If people are greatly blessed with the preaching of a gifted woman, then why isn't it okay? Right? I mean, let's just be honest. There, there are some, some women who, um, or let me say it this way, there are some men who, whew, they don't do a very good job preaching. So why isn't it okay? Well, first, first and foremost, let me ask you this. If that's the way you really want to go, God spoke through a donkey one time. Does that mean we should go out and find a donkey and put them in as preacher too? Now, I'm not debasing women. I'm not, please forgive me if that, if that sounded that way. That's not what I'm trying to say. But if we're going to argue in that way, he also used a false prophet named Balaam. Should we go find a bunch of false prophets and install them as preachers and pastors? No. 
because you never argue from the extremes. You never argue from the, from the edges. You always argue from the norm. And what's the norm? The norm is men leading the way. The question should never be, a church should never ask the question, does it work? I don't care if it works. You should not care if it works either. That's the wrong question. Does it work? Who cares if it works? The question should be, is this scriptural? The question is not, are women godly, mature, and wise? And honestly, some of them perhaps even wiser than men. The answer to that is yes, absolutely. There are many wise, godly, mature mothers in the faith. There are many. And we should be thankful for them. And we should rejoice that God has given them to us. And we should utilize the knowledge and the wisdom and the maturity and the godliness that they have. One of the most godly people I've ever known in my life was a lady by the name of Mary Nell Skirvin. Miss Mary Nell was one of the most godly women you would have ever met. We should, and I many times did go to her and say, Miss Mary Nell, can you please just pray for me and pray for the church that God would give us wisdom and understanding and how to do something or how to approach something. And she'd always smile real big and she'd say, oh yes, Brother Tim, I'll be praying for you. Brothers and sisters, the question is not, are there many godly, mature, and wise women? Let me be honest with you, and I say this, I hope, not to embarrass anybody, but there are many of these women, there, most of these women, I believe, are here in our own congregation. Many of our women here are godly, mature, and wise. And so the question is, has God, the, the question is, has God given women the role of pastor and elder in the church? Or have they given women, has he given women the role in the home to lead the home? And the answer to that is, no. What about objection seven? I think I have a couple more, so just bear with me. I think this is the last one, so bear with me. I just want to make sure I try to get as many as I possibly can. This is my favorite, so I saved this one for the last because I have heard this so many times. I think it would come out my eyeballs. Well, the objection goes, we've progressed past all that foolishness from the day of the Apostle Paul, and we now know better. Well, do we now? Well, let me just respond this way in saying this. Brothers and sisters, I think it's a very dangerous place to be because in Numbers chapter 16, there were three men who were all related. Their names were Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they too thought they knew better. And they too felt like they had progressed from needing Moses to be their leader. And that didn't turn out so well for them. Any church that decides that it knows better than God, any church that decides that it, it knows better than God, 
is treading on dangerous ground. And I'll say this, Paul goes even further in 1 Corinthians 14, 38, but if any man is ignorant, let him be ignorant. That is, listen, if you wish to be ignorant of God and God's teachings, God is going to be ignorant of you and will not acknowledge you. So listen, while people can fail to obey and apply the teaching of God's word on secondary matters, through male leadership, like through ignorance, right? You, you, a church can say, hey, we think this is okay, only later to find out that it's not okay. Or someone may say, I think I believe in, in this or that, or women preachers and, and women pastors, and I think that's okay. Only later to, 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 grow in the, to grow in the knowledge of scripture and figure out, no, it's not okay. That's one thing. But to fail to obey and apply God's teaching thoroughly knowing what God's word says or trying to excuse God's word by making excuses for it is, to, is the height of arrogance, the height of rebelliousness and stubbornness and it is dangerous. And so to reject Christ as king over, the, over your life and my life and over your family and my family, over the church is dangerous knowingly to do this and I would say this and I know you've probably heard this one and I would say I would continue to say it Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all so again I want to make this clear because and I want to make this indubitably clear male leadership does not and should never lead to abuse physical emotional, sexual, or any other kind. Male leadership should never be abused in any way. I grew up with a grandfather that thought that he was, because he was the man of the house, he could do what he want when he wanted. And as a result, there were many disastrous decisions made. And the results of that continue to ripple on throughout the generations. Brothers, this is not what we are called to do. We are called to be men who protect the father, fatherless, and the widows. We are called to protect those who have, been, who have been harmed by wicked and evil leadership in the name of leadership, in the name of good, godly leadership. We are called upon to be men of integrity and responsibility, men who protect and guard and guide and love and lead well. We are not called to do this all because we're just quote unquote men. We are men who are saved by grace and we should lead as those who are saved by grace. And so brothers, how should the church function before we get to the women? I think, that is an, I think that's an interesting point. Before we get to the women, we must start with us, ourselves, and say, Am I being the leader God has called me to be? Am I leading my family and my church and my society and my, my jobs and whatever else the case may be for you? Are you leading for the glory of God in your life? Are you leading well? Are you abusing that authority and that power? Brother, I urge you, if you are, to stop. Stop sinning. Break off from your sin before the Lord decides to step in and repay you. Let us be faithful, brothers, 
to love our wives and love our children, love the women of this church as sisters in Christ and see them as sisters in Christ and as mothers and as daughters in Christ for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching as we have looked at the call of men to lead in our homes and in our lives and in our our society and in our local congregations. Let us not abuse that authority. Let us not be men that are that are prone to, because we are weak, to, to prone to abuse that. Lord, let us, let us protect those who have been abused and guard those who have been hurt and harmed by evil and corrupted leadership. Let us as a congregation lead well though, holding one another accountable, honoring Christ, loving Christ, serving Christ as recipients of grace. Let us walk in the mercy and the grace of God and may we lead our selves and our homes and our lives and our our work and our church for your glory in Jesus name.